Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Raging Cajuns are winners yet again. Another midweek game, another dub in the books for Matt Deggs' team as they look to continue the momentum they have from an opening sweep in conference play to midweek game victories and roll that into this weekend series on the road in South Alabama. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. I'm your big, bald, and beautiful host, Raymond Parts III. Of course, I'm joined, as always, by the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Iserlo. And we're broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. We have a tremendous show lined up for you today on this Thursday. We got author Thomas Wolfe, new book, out in paperback, The Called Shot. It is a fascinating read. If you're a history buff, baseball guy, you're going to love this. You're going to want to tune in for this conversation. That's coming up at 7.30 today. At 8 o'clock, we'll talk the latest with the New Orleans Saints and the New Orleans Pelicans. Great news for the Saints. Not so great news for the Pelicans. Les East from ChristmasCitySports.com will break it all down for us. Thomas Wartell from Skill Masters Golf Pro, the golf coach extraordinaire, will join us as uh, we'll talk about my golf swing in particular. And it is not optimal. Or I'll tell you this. When I sent video of my swing to Thomas to say, hey, this is what my golf swing looks like. Told you I look like a bloated drunk giraffe. He said, you need to call 911 or go see a chiropractor right away. So we'll dive into that. Maybe you can get something useful from that conversation that's going to be coming up this morning in the 8 o'clock hour. And then our friend Adam Spencer from Saturday Down South, he's going to help us preview the Sweet 16, which tips off tonight. We'll dive into that. We'll talk Saints and so much more on today's show. And of course, We'll take your phone calls. You know we love to hear from you. Game hotline is always open. 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. But let's start off with some pleasantries. Good morning, Dawson, a.k.a. D-Lo, a.k.a. Two Degrees. What's up? How's it going? He's so always mild-mannered. Just always just... That's what, that's what I love. That's what I love about you, man. You just, you just, yeah, what's up? It could be raining volcanic ash outside, and my man D-Lo would be like, what's up? Yeah, I got to get to my car. It's not a problem. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> not an issue. You got you to gotta have even keel, you know. 
That's how you kind of stay poised in the big moments. That's right. You got you got ice water running through your veins. Yeah. Yeah. Dealing with some allergies this morning, but <laughs> that's another thing. Yeah. But we're getting through it. Oh, man. Yeah, you're like Scott Van Pelt pushing through, as he did last night. Lots to get to today. Dawson and I will dive into the Sweet 16. We will try our best to take a stab at previewing these games after our brackets were absolutely butchered. We'll try our best now. Interesting matchups on day one of the Sweet 16 for the men's tournament. We'll do a deep dive on that. We'll give you the latest updates on the New Orleans Pelicans. It isn't good. And we'll hear from some of the new Saints players, in particular new Saints defensive backs. That's all coming up. But we're going to lead off with the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. Baseball team got themselves another midweek win. Tuesday night, it was a one-sided affair. Right? They jumped out on poor Grambling and never looked back. They just was taking batting practice, essentially, is what they were doing, right? Game ended in the seventh inning. Well, competition was slightly better on Wednesday night at the Teague. And you know what? It wasn't batting practice. It wasn't an offensive explosion. It was some really, really stellar pitching from the Raging Cajuns that they utilized four different guys on the mound as they gutted out a 2-0 win against the defending Southland Conference champions and a team that went to the NCAA Regionals last year, Southeastern. So this is a quality opponent for a midweek game when it comes to, you know, midweek games. They gut out the 2 nothing win. And what I like about this team, and they showed it over the weekend, this team can win in different ways. We know Degg's specialty is hitting. We know he focuses on his teams being able to rake. And we knew that going into the season, especially with the lineup they had and the bats they had coming back. But they also know how to grind out some wins here. And you know why that's important? Yeah, it's great to be a great, outstanding hitting ball club. That's important. Make no bones about it. Absolutely important. You know what else is important? Because there are going to be some nights where your bats just aren't working. And you got to find a way to gut out a win. You got to do a little small ball. You got to have some really good pitching because your bats just can't get off your team's peripheral shoulders. This is what I like, what I'm seeing from this team, is that they're figuring that out. That they're figuring out how to grind out wins as well. And the pitching was on point last night. Once again, the four guys combined for the shutout victory. Tommy Ray, the junior righty, he got the start on the mound. He was effective early. He gave you three strong innings, no runs, just one hit and one walk. And it just kept going from there. Deggs decided to use several different pitchers. All of them executed well. Ray Rawls went three innings. Carson Fluno came in, pitched a scoreless seventh, and Brendan Moody closed it out 
with two, let's be honest, dominant innings to record his second save on the season. They pick up their fifth win in a row with the 2-0 victory. And Deggs said afterwards just how well his team pitched. They're a good ball club. You know, Matt Reiser has done a tremendous job there for a long time, and they've got good players. They played us tough, man. They scattered 10 hits, and, you know, they pitched us tough. But what can you say about Coach Tibbs' staff? I mean, that's three straight games, I think, at two hits or less, and, and uh, you know, another shutout. And that's, that's uh, like me and Brad were talking about, that's not just a single guy, that's that's a staff. And uh, so uh, I'm proud of where they were at and where they've come from to get where they're at right now. Uh, that was a good game. I love what Matt Deggs had to say. I have questions, though. Are we able, moving forward at the Teague, to request music? Is it like when I go to Waffle House and I always put a couple bucks in the jukebox and I pick my songs that I want to listen to? So much so that I got some compliments from uh, our waitress the other night who was very complimentary and thanked me for playing great music for her. At the Waffle House? At the Waffle House. You ever done the Waffle House Challenge? Oh, what is the Wolf House Challenge? Okay, so uh, it's been made popular by some fantasy football leagues as a punishment for the league loser. But essentially the way it works is you you have to spend 24 hours in a Waffle House straight, but every waffle you eat knocks an hour off. So, Oh, I mean, so what you're you saying is down, my day would only consist of a few hours. I mean, yeah, potentially. <laughs> That's what you, if you're gonna put down you, twenty waffles, but I hear there's a there's a pretty big wall you hit around that waffle number six, waffle number seven range. <laughs> but I I enjoy the Waffle House. I don't know if that'd be quite the punishment. It's one of my favorite places to go. Actually, well, you know, I'm just saying you, you do maybe want to pick one, and you know, there's some Waffle Houses that are in some areas that that could be better around the country. So I guess it would depend on which one you had to spend. A full day in. I thoroughly enjoyed our time at the uh, Waffle House, uh, right, right, right across the way in there, down the road in Karen Crow. And shout out to Paula; she enjoyed the music. But I digress. What's the deal with the music at the Teak? It's unreal. It's really unreal. Now <laughs> it's so loud. I, I I swear they turn it up when Deg starts talking as we are trying to get audio and you know conduct a press conference since we don't have a press room over there where we're on the field and they just play i mean i i it's anyway um give me your yeah, thoughts no. last so, night from from what you saw from the team and how they're able to grind out wins yeah and that's and that's something that that coach deggs even mentioned um but it, it's it's different ways of winning games and that's what they've yep. done now now last night you had the issue arise of you you had 10 hits and you could not scrape across runs you end up with two runs on 10 hits southeastern has two hits and doesn't score a run so ended up being enough but you left runners on base at some critical times and um you're still kind of waiting for some of those big hits and the big moments but i mean there's some guys peyton lejeune is a guy they're trying to get going and he had a couple of hits last night um now there's some injuries as well this team is dealing with a couple of injuries uh cj willis has been out for a while right. and so they're uh, they're also dealing i think zambo's been out for a little bit too so 
they're trying to get some guys uh, into some different spots right now. And Lejeune played first base last night, which isn't something he had done previously. So that was good to see as well. But the pitching is what you really take away. I mean, Tommy Ray, he was really good in two innings. The third inning got a little shaky, but he got out of it. And Coach Dex decided, and he told us afterwards that I just, you know, I, I felt like it was he got out of the jam. Let's leave it at that. Let's not let him go out there and try to get back into trouble. Um, and then you go to Cooper Rawls, who right now, I mean, I think his ERA got under one by the end of last night's game. I mean, he's been dominant, and so he's a guy that I don't even know if he has a clear-cut role yet. He's just going to be that utility guy who gets used in any situation. Um, then you go to Fluno, who's a, you know kind of proved himself as a back-end guy. I think he's probably your seventh, eighth-inning guy moving forward. And then Brendan Moody. Now, that was interesting because, of course, Brendan Moody has been the Saturday starter throughout the season. So when we talked to Coach Deggs afterwards, he said uh, that he wanted to switch up his role, and he actually kind of talked about what his plan is moving forward there. Well, I told you early in the week, and it may have slipped, you may have missed it, but that I was going to revamp it a little bit moving forward because I feel like Jackson Nazu is, is right. got a shot to jump up. And Moody is more, for me, more valuable as a swing guy, as a utility guy, uh, meaning close midweek. I'll use him Friday night. Uh, if we don't, then he's available to start on Sunday. So that's interesting. So essentially what Deggs is telling us is that Moody is going to be what, what Deggs calls a swing guy. So this is a guy that can go from being starter to the bullpen throughout the season. You need that versatility. I think the staff needs that versatility. And I don't know. I, I feel like Moody's probably the guy to do that. And look, it takes buy-in on the kid. You're asking the player to go, hey, bud, you're our Saturday starter this week. Oh, by the way, you were there, you're our Saturday starter this past weekend. But now we need you to be a middle reliever or our, our closer for a couple games this week. And, oh, by the way, eh, depending on how the series goes, we may need you to start on Sunday. It's different preparation. It puts more on the kid, the player, to be even more laser-focused because you have to be prepared to be coming out of the pen or starting during a week. Most guys, even at this level, aren't doing that. So the fact that Deggs and his staff go, this is our guy, and Moody says, okay, I'm down for that, I think says a lot, and I think this is going to be, could be a huge X factor, Dawson, for this team the rest of the season. Yeah, and you've got a couple of those guys, honestly, because Cooper Rawls could be the same way. Now, you yeah. haven't asked him to start yet, and he hasn't had to, but if you did... I don't think you'd feel bad about it at all. I mean, he's no. been a guy who's given you length. So um, those two combined, Blake Marshall, who was warming last night and has been the closer, but Moody just felt good. And they, they said, you know, the the initial plan was Moody just come in, get a little bit of work, throw one inning. Uh, but he felt really, really good. And he said, like, yeah, coming out of the bullpen was electric. Like, I enjoyed that. So he doesn't he doesn't seem to mind one way or the other. And you now have a couple of guys that are capable of doing and, that. And you know where that helps you more than anything? conference tournament time and an NCAA regional because of the frequency of games that you have to play in a short amount of time you need to be able to have that versatility and if they're to the point now as we head to the end of March and they got two guys that could 
serve in that role where they could be a spot starter and their seventh, eighth, and ninth inning guys. Huge advantage for the Cajuns. Huge advantage. So, Raging Cajuns got out a 2-0 win against Southeastern. They've won now five in a row, and they'll head over to Mobile to take on the South Alabama Jaguars. And Matt Deggs talked about facing the Jaguars, who have lost seven straight and opened up Sunbelt Conference play with a three-game sweep. Well, with any any conference game, I look at it like a, a 10-week war, man, 30 battles, and, and you have to match intensity. And you've got a, a it, it's it's a it's it's almost like football. I mean, you're only playing three games on a weekend, and you've got to come out and just let it all hang out. And and you got to play with passion. You got to play hard. And there's no time for getting tired. And this this that ain't this group. They're in great shape. They love to play, and they're built out last people. So uh, just get over there and play our game. And we'll wonder if they play semi-sonic at um, Stinky Field. Well, we'll have to do a deep dive in that and find out. By the way, I love that song, but um, just saying. I don't know. <laughs> can we can we get someone, can we get an intern to look into if they're going to be playing semi-sonic, glare, uh, blaring it over the loudspeaker PA system after any of the games at Stinky Field this weekend? We'll try to find that out. we got to take a time out. <laughs> Oh, man. Coming up here on RP3 and Company, news about the Pelicans. And guess what? It's not optimal. We'll share it, though, with you. That's coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update. Presented by Tibbs Trailers here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station. New Orleans Pelican. Injury update news. We got some updates yesterday. Let's go. You know, they don't do the hashtag won't bow down anymore. I miss that hashtag. Huh? It was defiant. Hashtag won't bow down. They don't have a hashtag this year. It's just hashtag Pelicans. That's it? That's lame. I mean, I, w- I was thinking a couple years ago, like how many more years in a row are you going to be able to come up with a tagline? It's like you had, you know, the Hornets back to when they were the Hornets. They had like the, the year where they were the NOLA, I'm in. Yes, yes. And then they, you know, like, the, it, and I was thinking there, I was like, man, well, that's that's a good one. The next year, well, there's another one. And then I was like, I mean, eventually we, we can't recycle any of these. Like we can't have the permanent, like the Saints just go with who dat, and that's just going to be it forever. You know what I mean? They're like, what's up? So maybe the Pels just need to stick with, I mean, won't bow down. I thought they could have, I guess that's more, you know, generalized though. I mean, I have, I have a recommendation. Was, you know, it was, was, was popular I, so. I have a recommendation for uh new orleans pelicans hashtag hashtag mr glass hashtag mash unit what do you think well he's back to basketball <laughs> activities so you can't say that anymore he's not playing he well <laughs> he's playing drills during practice oh, it's a step 
let's be positive. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna take your lead here, D'Lo. We're gonna be positive today because the news coming out of New Orleans is gonna be a game changer. Could be a game changer. There have been two stars for the Pelicans that have missed an extended period of time in Zion Williamson and Jose Alvarado. Alvarado has missed the last ten games due to a stress reaction in his right tibia. That does not sound good. She has shown significant improvement after doing some recent medical imaging. He will be re-examined in two to three weeks as he continues his rehab process and looks to get back on the court. It's a, it's a good diagnosis update on Jose. I just don't see how he's going to play. He's not. He's right? not going to play. He's not going to play. You're talking about the type of injury that he could re-injure it and make it severe. Right. And then talking about like missing six months. Like that's not what you're going to want to do. So I don't think Jose's coming back at all. Zion is back with basketball activities. Now, does that mean dribbling? Does that mean shooting three pointers? Does that mean playing on the Nerf basketball goal here inside the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette? We don't know. We just know that. Who that he is back to doing basketball activities. He's been out since January 2nd with the right hamstring strain, which he re-aggravated, but he will not be reevaluated for another two weeks. So that's your latest news. Jose out of the picture, right? We don't anticipate him coming back, but it does appear that Zion could come back in two weeks. Now, they'll have two games left. Oh, oh, you already did the math, huh? You already looked at the schedule, did you? Yeah, no, I know. Will they even be in the playing tournament by that time? Because that's 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 my real question. Well, I don't know if they'll be in it, but they won't be out of it because the Western Conference, nobody's going to take it from them. That's for sure. They're two games under five hundred. Now, Utah is fading, which we kind of anticipated. So, But I have to believe Dallas is going to figure it out. They lost last night. They lost last night. On a night. controversial call. A weird, bizarre call in yeah. different defending the different ba- basket. But the big fella in Minnesota's back. And yeah, not concerned. I love how you just discount... Like, it's a big deal for Zion to come back, but it's not a big deal for Carl Anthony Towns to come back for uh, Minnesota. I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that. I just think Minnesota as a whole is just the most meh team that I've ever experienced watching. Um, no, it, the thing is that if the Pelicans want one of those spots, they can get it. Nobody is taking it. Nobody's going to go. We've, we've been waiting too long. Nobody's going to win five or six games in a row. But um, do they want it? Uh, that's a different question. Ah, oh, see, there it is. There it is. And, and, and here's... And here's where you have to look at things. Oklahoma City Thunder want to be in the playing tournament. You can tell by the way they play basketball. Carl Anthony Towns sure does seem really happy to be back, and I think that's going to give the Timberwolves a boost. Do I think the Timberwolves are a great team? No. To your point about them being meh. Yeah, they're meh. You're right there. But Cat is going to want to push them and after being out what a couple months right three months maybe it feels like he's been out 
So really, it's Dallas and L.A. that you're trying to catch, in my opinion. Oklahoma City is young. They have all the picks in the world, and they're trying to get into the playing tournament. It feels like they want it. I think you're going to see Minnesota with a a boost now that Carl Anthony Towns is back. The two for me are going to be the Mavericks and the Lakers, and that's who the Pelicans have to catch. I don't think it's going to be any issue overcoming the Jazz. It looks like the Jazz are absolutely fading down the stretch here. Here's the problem, Dawson. Do you trust the Pelicans to catch the Mavericks and the Lakers? Do you trust them to win one more game down the stretch than those guys? Because well, that's catch, what it's going to take. You don't have to catch both of them. You just have to catch one. And Oklahoma City can also be the one um, if you're if you're discounting Utah from the conversation. So, yeah, I mean, I think they can catch one or the other. Um, now, getting to, t- to 9 versus 10 matters a lot, and getting to 8 versus 9 matters even uh, more. Matters so even more. If you're able to do that, then you start to to really sit there and go, maybe they have a chance if they get there. But like right now, if Zion doesn't come back and you end up as the 10 seed in the playing tournament, you're not getting out of that anyway. You'd have to win, you know, way more games than everyone else within the tournament does. That's just kind of how it's set up. So uh, I guess the only difference between nine and ten would be the uh, home court advantage. So that's not as big a deal as the eight, where you get to avoid the first game altogether. Um, Correct. And you get those two chances, of course, if you're the seven eight game. So. Uh, I don't know. It's a dumb tournament anyways. I've said that, so what does it matter? <laughs> so, if you're the Pels, and you're, you're you're teetering, you're good at best when it comes down the last two games of the season, and the seven and eight spots are already locked up, and the best you can do, best case scenario, is get into the playing tournament as the nine. You still want to get in. Is that your question? No, my question is, do you really want to play Zion just for a couple of games? Yes. Oof. Why? Because you got to show you got to show something, uh, and, and you got to show the fan base something that you that you worked really hard to get galvanized and show up, and they did, and then you lost them for three months. So I think you need, from an organization standpoint, and the direction where you're headed into the off season and trying to sell tickets and get people back invested. I think you need to show them something at the end. Um, from a basketball standpoint, yeah, are you going anywhere? Probably not. But also, I think it hurt. That's another thing that we've heard. You know, Zion hasn't gotten to play. He didn't play in the playing tournament last year. He wants to play in those types of games. So, getting him some experience in those types of moments isn't bad either because he hasn't done that in his NBA career yet. So, I think there's multiple. I think there's more reasons to want to do it than not to to want to bring him back if he's healthy. And again, I mean, he's had plenty of time. He should be very healed and rested. So. The last four games, which I feel like it's going to come down to that, because I think the Pelicans are going to mess around and win a couple games here. They've already won back-to-back games. Charlotte's a winnable game tonight. The Clippers are going to be without Paul George at least two weeks, probably three. He may not even be ready for the playoffs. That team has just snake-bitten with injuries. Just You think the Pelicans are bad. Look at the Clippers. Portland, it, they look like they're done. They're like, they're, we're done. But the Pelicans are an absolute trash team on the road. And then at Golden State, at Denver. It's really going to come down to those last five. Clippers at home, but Sacramento's going to be jockeying for positioning, for seeding. So is Memphis. By the way, John Morant's back. He came off the bench in his first game back and helped lead them to a victory. The Knicks are playing great. 
They're going to be vying for positioning as well. There's going to be, there's no teams down the stretch in this these last 10 games, especially in the last five, that are just gimme wins. Because, as you mentioned, the West is so bottled up, all these teams are still going to have something to play for because they're going to be jockeying for playoff positioning or trying to avoid the play-in tournament. That's not ideal if you're a Pelicans fan. It's not ideal. I, I, I think it's going to come down to that last game. I think it's going to come down to the game against Minnesota. On the road, by the way. Which is the dumb theater that the NBA made this stupid tournament for. So that's going to unfortunately <laughs> cement what they've already been uh, so. set on doing. Jose, yeah, it doesn't look like he's coming back. But Zion's back to doing basketball activities. Let's go. Hashtag won't bow down. We got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and company, what do we got in store for you? How about a little Sweet 16 preview action? How about that? How about we dive into that and try not to butcher it like we did when we did our brackets and picked Purdue in the championship game? That's all coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The Sweet 16 tips off tonight for the NCAA Men's Tournament. We have four what I call really intriguing matchups. You'll be able to listen to a few of those games right here on the game. We'll be carrying some of the Sweet 16 action tonight, courtesy of our friends over at Westwood One. And this is what you have on tap for the Sweet 16 day one. Michigan State, K-State. That's a 7-3 matchup in the East region. By the way, Michigan State is the favorite. The only lower seed in the Sweet 16 that is a betting line favorite out of Vegas. It's been a great story that you had the tragedy on the campus of Michigan State. They're kind of playing for that. They had an up-and-down season, but Tom Izzo knows how to coach in the NCAA tournament. And here is Sparty once again in the Sweet 16. K-State, though, is no joke. They're a really good program. 25 wins is no joke, especially when you play in the Big 12. Especially when you play in the Big 12 this year. That's your first matchup of the day. Michigan State, K-State. That's going to be followed by Arkansas versus UConn. The Fighting Musclemans, hey, let's go shirtless as much as we can. They're the eight seed, an up-and-down year for Arkansas, just like Michigan State. Arkansas kind of did, did not live up to their expectations. They had an up-and-down season. Remember, Arkansas lost to a terrible LSU team. But here they are. They found a way to get to the Sweet 16. They're taking on a UConn team that is a trendy pick, was before the start of the tournament, and it still is a trendy pick to make it to the Final Four. Two wildly different styles of basketball. Arkansas likes to run, likes to get up and down the court. 
UConn likes to make it a physical, kind of slow it down. So two contrasting styles there. That's going to be fascinating to watch. Later on, Florida Atlantic versus Tennessee. The Owls are the nine seed. They're taking on Tennessee. Tennessee took down the Louisiana Raging Cajuns and then eliminated one of the betting line favorites in Duke, the five seed. Rick Barnes gets Tennessee to the Sweet 16, right? The knock on him has always been he underperforms in the NCAA tournament, early exits. They knocked off Duke to get to the Sweet 16. Yet it feels like they still need to beat Florida Atlantic, <laughs> and which is a weird, which is a weird thing for the Tennessee Volunteers because of Rick Barnes's career. And then the final game of day one of the Sweet 16. You know how you say sometimes, man, I just want to have my dessert first because that's what I want more than the rest. Well, that's how I kind of feel tonight. We get Gonzaga versus UCLA, 3-2 seed matchup. Woo! That is going to be filth. And I can't wait. I love all four of them. I think they're all immensely intriguing. But which one stands out to you, the one that you're most intrigued by? I say Gonzaga, UCLA. Dawson, what do you say? So I would say Gonzaga, UCLA, but, you know, I'm a morning producer, and they just keep starting these games at, like, 11.45 p.m., so... For that reason, I'll go Kansas State, Michigan State. Um, it's look, eight forty-five, but okay. That's a yeah, but then it's gonna finish I know, at I know, eleven. But, I know, but anyway, I know. Um, Michigan State and Kansas State. It's it's a weird matchup because Kansas State's the better basketball team, like no doubt about it. For over the course of the season, they played in the better conference this year, um, and they were more consistent. First-year head coach Jerome Tang has done a fantastic job over oh. there. They've got a couple of familiar names: Marquise Noel is a former Arkansas Little Rock transfer who played against the Cajuns back at the beginning of his career. He's ended up having a nice uh, nice run with Kansas State, but they've been the more consistent basketball team. Picked towards the bottom of the conference. Again, a first-year head coach, a team that only won 14 games a year ago, weren't expecting a lot out of them, and here they are. They're a three-seed, and they've you know been the, one of the teams in the Big 12 that's, that's held steady in this tournament. But then Michigan State, who has been there before, and you start to see why are they a favorites? Well, because they have Tom Izzo, and they've been here before, and they've won big-time games, and they've been to Final Fours, um, and you know Vegas recognizes that. Now, this specific group of players maybe hasn't accomplished as much as some of Tom Izzo's teams in the past, but uh, I think Tom Izzo there is the, you know, the guiding principle as far as why they're the favorites. So... I think that becomes really interesting. Now, Michigan State's arguably playing as good as anyone right now. So, you know, they just took out Marquette in the last round. So it becomes one of those, do you trust the bigger body of work in Kansas State or do you trust the team that's playing really well right now and has the Hall of Fame head coach? So I really like that matchup one way or another. And it's a coin flip for I'm me. not making picks anymore, I decided. So you <laughs> won't find out who I think is going to win. Uh, I, I, like, I, like, look, I like all those matchups. The contrasting styles of Arkansas-UConn is fascinating to me as well. Because Arkansas, as I mentioned before, is a team that underperformed this year. They had an up-and-down season where you just they, they looked lost. And then they figured it out, and here they are in the Sweet 16. UConn, been a far more steady team, 27-8 and on the season. They, you could argue, you've heard Jay Billis say, UConn's been the most impressive team so far of the Sweet 16 teams. Like, they've just looked absolutely phenomenal and that they're just here to take care of business. 
those two contrasting styles intrigues me thoroughly. And then what do you get out of Florida Atlantic and Tennessee? The Owls have an opportunity to make it to the Elite Eight, which would be tremendous for that program. But it'd be tremendous for Tennessee to get back to the Elite Eight too, especially for Rick Barnes. Yeah, I've, I've, my thought process on Tennessee, it hasn't really changed since I saw him play UL. It's been if a, the team that scores enough to beat them is going to beat them. Um, and that's obviously not easy. Tennessee does some great things defensively. That's mm. part of the reason that they held Duke under you know, under 60 points and held the Cajuns under 60 An points. An NCAA and, tournament record for Duke, by the way. Right, and, and you know, but that's the thing. If you're able to knock down a few shots early and change the way they defend you, everything kind of changes. I think Florida Atlantic, with their offense and what they're able to do, can be that team. So I would not be surprised at all. I think Tennessee has become big favorites. Now, Florida Atlantic has kind of, uh, you know, they, they took the Cinderella role and kind of stepped on it when they tried to do a windmill 360 dunk at the buzzer of a game that they had in hand and then missed it, which somehow makes it more disrespectful when you miss that dunk. Yes, it does. So, you know, they have kind of, I think Tennessee all of a sudden has fallen. They're like, wait, are we the people, are we the team that people like again all of a sudden? So, uh, are people rooting for us? What's this? Yeah. And I think that one is going to be very close. But I think Florida Atlantic might be the team that can get hot enough to score on that Tennessee defense. And again, they were 33 and three this year. Yeah. And that's something that, of course, the committee doesn't care about, but I do. And if you score, and that's the other thing against Tennessee, if they're able to score early and get out to a hot start, and take a lead, I don't think Tennessee has enough offense to, to claw their way back into a game like that. I think they have a formula for them to win, and it's what they did against Louisiana. It's what they did against Duke. Uh, but if Florida Atlantic can switch that up and hit shots early, they have a great chance to beat Tennessee because they can't dig themselves out of a hole. It sounds like you prefer the two games that are going to be held at Madison Square Garden, Michigan State, K-State, and then after that will be Florida Atlantic, Tennessee, over the two at T-Mobile Arena in Vegas, which is Arkansas, UConn, and then Gonzaga, UCLA. I still, well, Gonzaga's been, you know, and that's actually, that's an actual matchup that was in my bracket, Gonzaga, UCLA, go figure. So if the Zags win, I'll have something to go by. But uh, I, I, like I said at the beginning of the tournament, I felt Gonzaga was going to come under the radar and was going to surprise some people, make a run this year. So I think uh, this is the point they were expected to be at. So tonight would be the win that kind of proved people wrong. So I expect them to get it done. Um, and I do like that matchup. Drew Temme, people have been, you know, and I've made the joke about him being there for 75 years. It's funny, he's actually just ended up having a normal college career as far as length, right? But uh, since guys don't do that anymore, we feel like he's been there so long. But if he can come up big, hit a couple of shots, and then, you know, we've talked about it before, but UCLA's missing a couple of guys. So that could be the uh, the difference in that one. Arkansas-UConn, I haven't touched on much. Uh, yeah, Arkansas is the team that you just don't want to face in the tournament. That's kind of become that. Eric Musselman's been there before, so he takes down you know the defending champs in Kansas. There's no reason to think that they won't play well again, but UConn with Sonogo inside, uh, if he gets it going, they're tough to beat. They're tough to beat, and I don't know if Arkansas has the guys to defend him. So we'll see. Sweet 16 tips off tonight for the NCAA men's tournament. You can listen to it right here on the game following the conclusion of Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh at 6 o'clock. we got to take a timeout. We'll wrap up hour number one next right here on the game. 
This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is known for being a well-tempered and thoughtful sports journalist. The incompetence, the absolute abundance of arrogance from Rob Manford makes me want to punch him in his throat. Okay, well, we all have our bad days. I'm not kidding. If he was right here in the studio, I would walk up to him and throw him a punch. Well, let's all hope he took his meds today. Back to hopefully a calm and collected RP3 on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Poll question of the day. Will Zion Williamson return during the regular season? He's back to basketball activities. They have 10 games left. He'll be reevaluated in two weeks. Does not mean that he's going to be able to play in two weeks. It's just that he's going to be reevaluated. But he is back to basketball activities we learned yesterday, and we talked about it earlier on today's show. So we ask you, will Zion return during the regular season? 38% of you say no. 32% say who cares 25% says who knows and 5% says yes there's already 40 votes on this y'all are all so salty our guy Darren who celebrated a birthday recently shout out to D be for real Mr. Mashed Potatoes ain't about to play they wasting other people's time money and careers now first Drew then JJ's playoff run now CJ I think it's getting tired of this that Cajun says best ability is availability Hart on Twitter says, I don't know what stings most. Appel's loss or RP3 sports extreme sarcasm the day after. <laughs> Sorry, bud. Sorry. I want the Pels to be good. I really do. I just I just don't know if you're ever going to really see it. Ton says, I hope so. I don't think they're out of it yet, but I'm getting tired of him being injured all the damn time. And then he shared another tweet Ton did. Hashtag. Might not bow down, but might fall down. Hashtag half season squad. Hashtag never the same starting five. Hashtag flocked up. Hashtag flock tall. Hashtag flock we might be done. Shout out to Ton for the creativity with the hashtags. I'm here for it. The notorious dub says Zion is back watching game film. Pills new hashtag. Hashtag who cares? <laughs> he says I'm getting Zion's most used jersey and it's. <laughs> A picture of him in street clothes. Keep those votes coming. Keep those comments coming on the poll question of the day. We'll update it and share it throughout today's show. Hour one in the books. Hour number two coming up right here on the game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Welcome back to RP3 and Company. Oh, man, we've had a good start to today's show. We talked Raging Cajuns baseball, 
gutting out a 2-0 win at the Teague last night against Southeastern Louisiana. This team continues to find different ways to win ballgames. You like that. And I like this development with taking one of their Saturday guys and being able to use him as the swing man. That's going to give them a leg up. They're going to need that, especially down the stretch. Sunbelt Conference play at the Sunbelt Conference tournament as well. So, like what I'm seeing from the Raging Cajun baseball team, they got a three-game series on the road at Stanky Field to take on the South Alabama Jaguars. That should be a great series. I know South Alabama's lost seven straight and they're down, but that's an old-school rivalry series that always gets a little testy, should be good. We also shared with you the news about Zon Williamson and Jose Alvarado. We got injury updates yesterday from the Pellies. Jose Alvarado, eh, I don't think I don't see him coming back at all this year. Then we also got an update that Zion Williamson, hello, our guy Zion, the face of the franchise, what they're building the foundation for future success on. His very strong shoulders and legs is back to doing basketball activity. And that's led us to our poll question of the day. Will Zion return during the regular season? Once again, he's going to be reevaluated in two weeks. The Pels only have 10 games left. Dawson broke it down. See, this is what happens when you pay for top-notch education. University of Louisiana at Lafayette and then Florida State University. You can find out information. You can put together math and be able to do things like this. Hashtag two degrees to our guy. Great job. Appreciate that. If he does come back and they reevaluate him and they say he's good to go, which never happens, right? It never happens where you have assigned a time to be reevaluated and they go that morning. They're like, hey, D'Lo. Bud, you've been injured for a long time. Let's do your evaluation this morning. It's not as if by 1 o'clock in the afternoon they're, they're like, hey, man, you're good to go. Suit up and go give us 30 minutes. So there's – I don't even know if he is reevaluated in two weeks, if he's even going to be there to be able to play in the last couple of games, which would be at home against the Knicks and then on the road against the T-Wolves. But we wanted to hear from you because it just isn't about what Dawson and I think. Oh, no, no, no. It's about what you, the people, think. So will Zion return during the regular season? 40% of you say no. 29% say who cares. 25% say who knows. Only 6% of you say yes. Who that forever says me every time I hear news about Zion and shared a gif of someone screaming. Ralph on the Twitter says, nope, Zion is quickly becoming the Yeti of New Orleans. People get an occasional glimpse, but hard to prove he really exists. Maybe some Jack Link's beef jerky will lure him back. Such a disappointment. Oh, man. Salty Steve says, Odom, Bowie, and Zion are all going down as the best to never prove their greatness because of physical inabilities to stay on the floor. 
another what-if story for the NBA. JPK, the OD, says, who cares? Tired of playing this game. He is a broken toy. Cut bait, trade him to the Knicks. Move on, bring on the lotto ping pong balls. Hashtag, the juice ain't worth the squeeze. People are frustrated. People are frustrated. And then John Paul Cajun Daddy just says, who cares? It's baseball season. (laughs) And LC says, David Griffin is a bum. Look, we're going to have a conversation real quick about this. You still hold out hope that Zion can kind of have the career that Joel Embiid has had. I know it's different because the 76ers knew they were drafting a guy that had an injury problem, right? Zion missed some games in high school and missed some games in college. Remember in college, he blew out his shoe, right? So that's a little bit different. And I think it it, it changes the whole thing, Dawson, with the expectations because Joel Embiid was part of the process, a well-documented, well-reported-on philosophy that the 76ers had where they were like, we're going to tank and we're going to rebuild our franchise and we're going to do so on guys that have been injured. But we're going to play the long game here and it's going to turn around. So 76er fan when they took Embiid, knew that this was part of the process, right? Knew that this was going to be an issue that it wasn't going to happen overnight and that if it did happen, it was going to take a while. That wasn't the case in New Orleans. Like Zion came and put on the white suit and they had the pep rally in downtown and people got excited and Drew Brees gave them a jersey and It was a whole thing. Like, Drew Brees is like, the city's yours now. And he's never been able to stay on the court. So I think it's a little bit different. I think that's why people don't think that Zion could have a Joel Embiid type of career because the expectation for Embiid was, I think, less. Because they're like, well, this guy is injured and we're in a complete rebuild mode. That wasn't the case when they took Zion and made him the face of the franchise. So I think that's different. I think I think that's why Zion missing time feels more like a huge disappointment than when Embiid missed all that time early in his career. RP3, that's a great point, man. That's that that's actually you know I didn't think about that. You know you you brought something new to the table there. Thanks, man. I you know I wasn't I, you know. I agree. You know, when it comes to Pelicans, I don't have a lot to say right now. That's been how I have been for a couple weeks now. (laughs) That was awesome. Hey, if anyone wants to talk to me, game hotline's open. 337-706-0111. Give us a call. D-Lo needs a day off. He had a late night. (laughs) Let's head out to the... Game hotline. Welcome on, Mr. Green, aka Jamie. Good morning, brother. What's on your mind, bud? Hey, good morning, Mr. Third. So, uh, when does it stop hurting? 
and I don't mean Zion's knee, like, or hamstring or shoulders or whatever the heck he's dealing with now because I can't keep track. He's always injured. Um, when does it stop hurting to be a Pels fan? It's Look, it's tough, bud, because <laughs> and, and, and look, I understand both sides because it, it, it's not Zion's fault that he gets injured, right? It, it, it's not as if he's being reckless, right? He's he's not going out there and, and playing celebrity softball games and injuring himself. He's he's taking care of himself. He puts in the work. He, his body, and I've said it before, we've never seen someone built like him. I don't think he's supposed to be built the way that he is. Like I, I don't think it's supposed to. That frame is supposed to carry as much weight as it does. And I think that's a problem. And look, I'm not a doctor, but it just, when you see the unicorns, what happens with the unicorns when we talk about sports? They never have long careers, do they? They're yeah, like a that's, shooting that's star. Rare. They're like a comet. They come and they go and they're done. That's typically that's, how that's it works. Very rare. Yeah. I, I tell you what, though, I, I blame MC Louis P for my fandom. Like, this has been a. <laughs> This has been a roller coaster of a couple of years. Uh, I hope that he comes back. I really do. Um, I mean, like you said, he, he's, we've never seen anybody like him with his body and his body type. But, I mean, when he's on the floor, he's electric. But Correct. it's kind of like, you know, electricity in a snowstorm. You never know when it's going to go out, and you never know how long it's going to be out for. So, uh, but I mean, I hope to see him back. I mean, the league—you know—the league wants to see him back. New Orleans, in general, wants to see him back. I think, but uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. I guess we could just gotta go. Uh, hashtag this is blocked up. Oh, 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 oh. oh, Jamie, appreciate your time, brother. Enjoy your day, my yeah, friend. Great day. Yeah, have a great day. I get the frustration because it's exhausting, right? If you're an actual Pelicans fan, which I'm not, I, I, I want them to do well, but I'm not a fan. It's immensely frustrating because it's always something with this franchise. And, and this predates Zion, by the way. So the frustration a lot of Pels fans have isn't necessarily all about Zion either. Let's be fair here. It's the organization has been all about false hope since it arrived in New Orleans from Charlotte. So it's a lot of frustration going on. But I do think it's different, right? And the, the difference here, another difference between the Embiid and Zion situations is this. And we already talked about how you know, remember Embiid suffered, had a stretch fracture in his back in college. And the 76ers still took him with the third overall pick. His, his season ended. He didn't even play in the NCAA tournament. If you remember, guy had a stretch fracture in his back. And the 76ers are like, this is part of the process. We're taking this guy. It's like, oh, okay. Then, if you remember, after he was drafted, he had to have surgery to repair a broken bone in his right foot that ruled him out for four to six months. He barely played early on. He barely played, but he finally kind of got it together, 
played those 31 games in 2016-17. Then he got up to 63 games. And, and he's been a regular star with consistent playing time ever since then. The last five seasons, he's been at another level. And look, Joel Embiid, you can make an argument, could, should be named the MVP this year. With the way he's playing and the way he's carrying the Philadelphia 76ers. He's turned into something really great after missing essentially the first two years of his career. So, But Philly fans expected it because they were drafting a guy that had a broken back and had a broken foot and was part of the process because they were tanking and they were supposed to be terrible. Griffin and everyone made Zion the savior. He's the guy that's going to save our franchise. He's the guy that's going to bring us back to prominence. He's the guy that's going to do this because Anthony Davis didn't want to play here anymore and screw him and the Lakers are trying to fleece us and everything else like that. Someone's going to bring us some positivity. It's going to be Zion. And then the guy doesn't play. And the guy doesn't play. Did you see that tattoo he debuted, though? I. Well, supposedly now it's not new. If you saw some of the rumblings, there's a picture of him playing in a game back in November. There's rumblings about a tattoo? Yeah, well, that's what I've focused my energy on. Okay. It's just exciting. Understood. I mean, it was Sorry. it looked good. It was Sorry, I was, I was trying to do an Embiid, Zion comp, and how it, with, with the fan bases, you were like, you know what, I'm not feeling that. I want to talk about tattoos. Yeah, Let's go. yeah. Right. Well, I mean, again, I where where am I with this with this situation? I <laughs> I know. I'm just, okay, you know. so what about so what's so fascinating about a Zion tattoo? Well, because there is reports that oh look, it's Zion's new tattoo. This is the first one he's gotten, or this or that, and there was pictures of it. But then there's pictures of him playing in a game in like November, and you can see it. So then people were like, "This isn't new at all. Y'all are just late to the party." But then, I mean, I hadn't seen it before, and so it was just it was some conflicting reports. So that's what I was like really focused on, you know, whether he's going to play or not. Not worried about that anymore. Got it. But he's what is what what is the tattoo of? It's I think it says Mount Zion. Oh, nice. You know, reference nice. to the nice. Okay, okay. You know, the story and everything. Uh, um, but. <laughs> Let me ask you, as a Pelly fan, do you want to see him play this year? Yes. It's a lost season. What do you mean? Yes. It's a lost season. You still want to see him play? Yes. Hmm. I'm not going to cut off my nose to spite my face. I'm not going to want to not see him just because, you know. I don't know if that was the best reference to use there, but I, don't, I, I want to see him play. That's the point. So if he can play that last Friday of the season, the regular season, Yes, I hope he scores 100 points. Against the Knicks. By the way, Julius Randle, man, he, he's pretty good at playing basketball. Yeah, he's, he's all yeah, right. There we go. There we go. There we go. And uh, who else Who else is on the Knicks roster? Oh, that's that, that's playing pretty good basketball and is, help, is helping them to a, a good season. Oh, that Josh Hart fellow. Man, man, I wonder if the Pelicans could get a guy like that. They had him forever, and he they didn't do it. It's okay. <laughs> What's the I deal with I the like guys playing better when they leave? That's well, another thing we don't have time to get into. I mean, he was he was he's always been. I mean, he took it to a different level, yes, but he was always a good player. I mean, you had better players in front of him. They didn't win games, but they were better players. The exception is, of course, Lonzo Ball, who may never play basketball again. Ooh, wow, that guy's body is completely broken down. Yeah, that's unfortunate yeah, for him. Ooh. But very, very much unfortunate. I had a thought. No, okay. So against the Knicks, you want to roll down there 
You want to see if I can get us credentialed for that? Yeah. What are, for that Friday night game against oh, the is Knicks? it in New Orleans? It's in New Orleans. Oh, I thought you meant Madison Square Garden. I was like, yeah, absolutely, I'll go. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have that kind of pull. Dude. Um, yeah, I'll have to look at the dates, but if if, if the it's dates Friday. work out, it's Friday. It's a Friday. It's gonna. Right, be- I know. I'm, I'm. I know. I'm gonna have to look at which Friday that is. Is what I meant. <laughs> it's Friday, April seventh. That could work. We'll see. Check your calendar. I will. Check your calendar. Roll down there. Be in the Smoothie King Center. Watch them put on a show. Make you feel hopeful again. Inspire the Pelican Nation. Flock up. Absolutely. <laughs> we got to get to a timeout. Yeah, we do. We got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll talk New Orleans Saints. Hear uh, from a couple of their new defensive backs. That'll be next right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. You know how some fellas don't care how they look? I mean, a few of you are rocking sweatpants that haven't been washed in days. Ew. Not to worry, my dear unkempt friend. RP3 and company is a judgment-free zone. Hell, sometimes these guys don't even wear pants. I would like to extend to you an invitation to the pants party. Excuse me? The party. The pants with the pants. Party with pants. Now back to the hopefully fully clothed RP3 on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. that were um, interested um my decision kind of came down to a couple of you know reasons you know I got the chance to play with some great guys they've already had a great culture of playing defense here um close to home which kind of makes sense for me you know it means a little bit more when you're kind of playing for what they call the home team you know I kind of got that same experience coming from college you know when it started out at Georgia and it'll finish up at Mississippi State you know so and pretty much, you know, coming here, I look at the defensive backs who play here. You know, they all pretty much have had success, whether they're here or whether they've left. So, you know, excited to be a part of, you know, the culture now. Jonathan Abram. He's one of the two versatile defensive backs that the Saints have kind of signed to team-friendly deals this past week. Now, Abram bounced around in his pro career, right? He was a first-round pick of the Oakland Raiders, then has played for a couple other teams. So he, he's already kind of been on that journeyman path, if you will. And the same can be said for Lonnie Johnson, right? Lonnie Johnson's bounced around to a couple different teams as well in the AFC. So these are guys that have experience, but I like these moves because they're, they're low risk, right? If you get them playing at a high level, great. But you're not investing a ton of money. You're filling up roster depth. You're giving yourself more versatility. And we know Dennis Allen loves having defensive backs and defensive players with versatility. And the fact that you got two guys that you've added that bring experience and can do multiple things for you is great. 
And maybe they're just the third and fourth guys. Maybe they only play in dime packages or special teams guys. But you know what you can't have enough of in the modern NFL? You can't have enough defensive backs. Because the game is a passing game now. And guys get injured. And you got to have bodies. And you got to have guys that have experience. You can't have enough defensive backs. This is why I like these moves. They're low risk, high reward for the Saints. Mickey Loomis is making smart moves. And look, Abram, even though he's had an inconsistent career and he has not lived up to the first round hype, he is a physical player. He does bring some physicality to it. But the other thing is, during this process of bouncing around the last couple years and this last month or so, trying to find a new home, what has he learned about himself in the last few months? The past couple of years have taught me a lot, you know, kind of growing up, you know, being in the league, you know, learning how to play, how to be a pro, you know, how to go about my work every day. Um, you know, bouncing around kind of taught me, you know, the ins and outs of how the league actually works because I don't think a lot of guys do know. You know, as if when you get cut, you get put on waivers and you don't really get to choose where you go. Teams get to claim you. So these were all things that I really didn't know. You know, so it kind of showed me the business side of it outside of football. But, you know, coming here in New Orleans, I just look forward to just maximizing my opportunity and every opportunity they give me and making the most out of it. So Abrams coming to New Orleans to try to make the most of an opportunity. And the same thing can be said for Lonnie Johnson Jr. You know, here's another guy, cornerback. Bounced around in college, played Juco a couple different places, ended up at Kentucky, was a second-round pick. And this guy has played for the Texans for a couple years, and then he was a practice squad player for the Chiefs and the Titans this last year. Now he's with the Saints. So this is a guy that's trying to get his career on track as well. And you know what? He really liked New Orleans. He felt it was a really good fit. And he talked about what he really liked during the process of being able to come to New Orleans? Man, I just like that they, they don't take away from um, them being themselves. Obviously, uh, with Marshawn, with the way his fireness, uh, the way he played as far as with his attitude and his physicality, and then Tyron with his versatility, um, May with his versatility, and then like bringing in me with versatility. So it's like, obviously, they they use their guys to, to their advantage, and they know what they're doing with their guys over here. So. That was part of the reason why I chose to come to the Saints. And look, Lonnie is a, a physical guy. He he likes to play physical. He's a big guy. He's six foot two, two hundred and thirteen pounds for cornerbacks. So this is a guy that can body up against maybe a possession receiver, another big body wide receiver. And he talked about what he brings to the team. I don't really want to give away none of the stuff that the coaches uh already said to me. I'm gonna leave that up to them. But um, like far as me playing, like I'm come down, put my head down, man, get to work uh, wherever they need me to be, like whether that's guarding tight ends, playing corner, playing safety, they know I can do multiple things. So um, whatever they need me to do, that's what I'm willing to do. Um, just like I said, like I'm just going to put my head down and get to it. Both guys are SEC guys. Both guys were former first and second round picks. They're looking to prove something, and they have accepted prove-it deals, and they're versatile. Low-risk, high-reward for the Saints. These are the type of smart moves that help you get back to the playoffs. These are the type of smart moves that help you win championships. 
is finding guys that want to prove it, that'll take team-friendly deals that are versatile. Both could pay off in a big way. And if they don't, you know what? It's not going to barely cost them anything. We've got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, Thomas Wolfe, author of The Called Shot. That's right, the famous shot by Babe Ruth in Game 3 of the 1932 World Series. We'll talk about baseball, baseball history. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, welcome back to RP3 and Company on this Thursday edition of the show. Make sure to go vote on the poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. And I don't know about you, but baseball season can't get here soon enough. I know we got college baseball. And that's kind of been, you know, helping us out with our our need, our craving for great baseball. And we just had the World Baseball Classic with some excellent games, some legendary games. And that was amazing. But I can't wait for the actual season to begin, which will happen in less than two weeks. So it seemed like a great time to talk more baseball with a great book out there. It's now available in paperback. It's called The Called Shot. Babe Ruth, the Chicago Cubs, an unforgettable Major League Baseball season of 1932. The author joins us now here on the show, Thomas Wolf. Thomas, good morning, brother. Thank you for making the time. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking some baseball. Same here, brother. Same here. Look, I find something immensely interesting about your book because, look, everyone knows of one of the greatest moments in baseball lore. Uh, It could be myth, and we'll get to that uh, momentarily about Babe Ruth's called shot in the World Series against the Chicago Cubs. But the 1932 season was fascinating for a multitude of reasons, and you do a real great deep dive into that. But why did you want to tackle this subject, and why did you want to tackle the season as a whole? What was it about the 1932 season that really appealed to you to want to write a book about it? Well, I thought the season had all the elements of a, of a great season as well as a great story. Um, two great pennant races, um, a very memorable World Series, an iconic moment, as you've already mentioned, um, in the World Series. And it's Cubs and Yankees, you know, are two of the longest, um, you know, longest and most popular franchises in, in history. And for them to collide in 1932 um, just made for a really good story. And in addition to that, as you know from the book, um, I deal with what's going on in America in 1932, which is a traumatic and important and turbulent year for Americans. Um, the, the Lindbergh uh, baby was kidnapped and killed that, that year. Hoover and Roosevelt were competing for the presidency. It's the middle of the Depression. Um, it was such a rich time in history for this particular season to also be so important for baseball. And you mentioned it in the book. Obviously, Major League Baseball was still segregated at this time, and the country was still segregated at this time as well uh, back then. You know, I think we forget 
uh, about things. You know, at this time in 1932, the St. Louis Cardinals were the furthest team west in the entire league, and there was only 16 teams in the league. The Western expansion had not happened yet. Brooklyn had not relocated out to Los Angeles. Just how different was baseball during this time when we only had 16 teams and the furthest team west was the St. Louis Cardinals? That's a great question and, and really sort of indicative of, the, of what makes this history so, so unique. Um, yes, yeah, St. Louis was the furthest west. Washington was the furthest south, only 16 teams. It was all baseball played during the day. Um, games tended to run for about two hours as opposed to three hours now. Um, and as you mentioned, um, although the Negro Leagues were very vibrant in the 1920s and 1930s, um, in the white major leagues, um, the white major leagues were segregated, of course. So the very best white players um, didn't play against the best Negro League players during the regular season, although they did barnstorm together. Um, it was just a very different time in America. Um, and a very rich time sort of historically to look back at. You touch on this in the book as well, and the Cubs were a fascinating team for many reasons. And at the, you know, all-star break period, the 4th of July period, uh, the Cubs were just one of seven teams in contention for the pennant out of the National League. And you do a great job of diving into that about Pittsburgh and Chicago and some of the others. Uh, the American League, it looked like the Yankees, and that seemed to be kind of the, the the clincher there. But the National League was wide open. How did the Cubs get it done? Well, the, the Cubs are a great story in 1932 um, because, as you say, it was a very tight tight pennant race. And uh, they had, of course, as their player manager, Rogers Hornsby, probably the greatest right-handed hitter in, base, in baseball history, unless you know, it would be an argument that Hank Aaron might, might get that title. But... Um, Hornsby was a very difficult person to deal with, and the Cubs had all kinds of adversity during the season. Their shortstop, Billy Jurgis, was shot by his girlfriend um, just a few blocks away from um, Wrigley Field. Later in the season, Hornsby, as the pennant race was um, winding down in August, Hornsby was actually fired in the middle of the pennant race. And then, because there was a roster spot open, the Cubs um, signed a minor leaguer named Mark Koenig, who became the key player in their drive to the pennant in August and September. And Koenig, coincidentally, um, had been a former New York Yankee who had played on the wonderful 1927 Yankees team and had been a teammate of um, Babe Ruth. And Koenig's play helped spur the Cubs into the World Series, and Koenig's presence there created a lot of the controversy that led to the called shot. We're talking with author Thomas Wolfe. His latest is now in paperback, The Called Shot, Babe Ruth, the Chicago Cubs, an unforgettable Major League Baseball season of 1932. He joins us here in RP3 and company. You know, we mentioned earlier it was a different era, right? All the games were played during the day. They only took about two hours. Baseball was segregated. But it was also an interesting time there in 1932 where we had a rash of on-the-field fights Fans fighting with players, players fighting with umpires, umpires fighting with fans, managers. It was kind of chaotic that season, was it not, Thomas? Yeah, it sure was. And um, I think I say in the book that double that the fights were as common as double plays, um, and that's a bit of an exaggeration. But um, these were these were players who were very 
rough and uh, tumble tumble guys. And um, the rosters in 1932 had been cut from 25 to 23 because of economics. And uh, every player in the major leagues was fighting for his job. And I think that's part of what spurred so so much conflict on on the field. Um, Billy Jurgis, who I mentioned earlier, got into a, a fight with Mickey uh, Finn of the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, just over getting spiked at second base. And that was common. What was a little less common, as you um, n- note, were, were players who got in fist fights with umpires. And there's one very famous um, case of that where uh, an umpire named George Moriarty had been harassed all game long by members of the Chicago Cubs, and he went underneath the stands and said that he would fight the whole team. And a pitcher named Milt Gaston stepped forward and said, well, you might as well start with me. And the umpire, Moriarty, started the fight by knocking him out and breaking his jaw before the rest of the White Sox beat him up under the stand. That wouldn't happen today. <laughs> no, no, it, it wouldn't happen today. It was definitely a different time. You know, uh, we focus so much on Babe Ruth because of the called shot, and obviously he was one of the greatest of all time. But 32 is also the year where Jimmy Fox kind of takes over as the league's most dangerous hitter, wasn't it? It sure was. And and Fox really had a, a legitimate chance to break the home run record of Ruth. And Fox wound up with 58 home runs, um, so he didn't get to the magic 60 or 61 um, that was the standard at, at that point. Um, and Fox, of course, played for the Philadelphia Athletics, who were a powerhouse team, as good as the Yankees were in 26, 27, and 28, the Philadelphia Athletics had won the American League three years in a row, 29, 30, and 31. So the 1932 season for the Yankees to defeat the Philadelphia Athletics, especially when Fox had such a fantastic year, is another very dramatic point in the season. Let's get to the World Series. It's Cubs versus Yankees, and it's Ruth's final uh, World Series victory in his storied career. And there in the fifth inning, in game three at Wrigley Field, the alleged called shot takes place. It is one of the greatest debates in Major League Baseball history. Some say it happened. Some say it didn't happen. Some say it's myth. Some say it's factual. Uh, where do you side on whether or not he called his home run shot or not? I think a little bit of whether or not he called it or not depends on the semantics and what you mean by a called shot. Um, Ruth, according to the videotape that that we have, which is sketchy, definitely was pointing. And those who say he didn't point are are just wrong. He was definitely pointing. What's not clear on the videotape is if he was pointing to the outfield or if he was pointing to the Cubs dugout. So he was pointing, and... Ruth hit a home run once every nine at-bats in the 1932 season, once every 8.5 at-bats in his career. So Ruth went to the plate thinking and wanting to hit a home run. He pointed, and then he did hit a home run. So the question is, did he call it? Did he actually point to the spot where the ball landed? I doubt that. But he created a situation, and he... He was he was he acted on it. I mean, he was an an incredible individual in terms of predicting what he was going to do and then doing it. And I can't think of any other athlete in American history, with the exception of Muhammad Ali, who was able 
to be such a dynamic force in his sport and predict the things that he was going to do. So I come down on the side that Ruth came to the plate, predicted a home run, expected to hit a home run, pointed, tried to show up the Cubs, and then hit the home run. Um, I don't believe he actually pointed to the spot where the ball landed, and that's sort of where the controversy um, you know, erupts. It's one of the greatest moments in baseball lore. And, you know, I just love, you know, you paint the picture. He's there. It's the, you know, the top of the fifth inning in game three. FDR is in there, is in the, you know, in the stands watching the game uh, with with some of the Yankee uh, personnel. It's just, it's it's a great read. I'll I'll wrap it up with this, uh, Thomas. You know, anytime a writer takes on a project and is going to put together a book, they have an idea, a vision of what it's going to read like, what you're going to cover, what you're going to do with it, what story you're going to tell. But every writer I ever speak to always tells me the same thing. They find something else they weren't expecting. The journey of actually writing the book unveils something to them or leads them down a path that they weren't expecting. What was that for you with this project, The Called Shot? Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's another great question. Um yeah, I knew the baseball. I knew the history of the, of the season, the Cubs and the Yankees, and I knew how it was going to end with Ruth um, called called shot in the World Series, and then his future called shot, which was in Pittsburgh in May of 1935. The last home run he hit was a, definitely a called shot in Pittsburgh. But the thing that probably surprised me the most, a little piece of research that I found, was that on the morning of October 1st, before Ruth went to Wrigley Field to play that game, which was the first time he'd ever played a game in Wrigley Field, and to hit that home run, he visited a child in the hospital who had been burned in a bomb attack. And this child, Leo Keppen, um, was a baseball fan. He was actually blinded in this attack. And Ruth visited him on his way to the, to the ballpark. And when he left this boy's room, he said, I promise to hit a home run for you this afternoon. That's such a remarkable moment, I think, and it so much sums up Ruth in terms of his generosity to fans and especially his love of kids. And I didn't know that story before. It is in the book. Um, I think it just adds some allure to the whole call shot story. Thomas, it is a fascinating read. I can't wait to finish it. Um, and obviously it's, it's become part of my collection. And as my wife looks at me all the time, she goes, another book about sports? And I go, yes. Yes, but this one is really, really good. And uh, that's not a lie when, it, when I talk about your latest, brother. Thank you so much for making the time, man. And uh, best of success with this now being in paperback form. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking to you, and I hope, hope your readers will like the book. Once again, that's Thomas Wolfe. He is the author of The Called Shot, Babe Ruth, the Chicago Cubs, and the unforgettable Major League Baseball season of 1932. It's available in paperback form right now at your local bookstores as well as online. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station over watching a mandated webinar at work. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to this exciting meeting today to discuss... Take that, productivity in the workplace. This is The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
Poll question of the day. Will Zion Williamson return during the regular season? He's getting back to doing basketball activities, whatever that means. He'll be reevaluated in a couple weeks, which means the earliest he could get back is for the final two games of the regular season. That's if he gets cleared in two weeks. It's a big what if. Will Zion return during the regular season? 44% of you say no. 26% say who cares. 23% say who knows. And 7% of you say yes. Doug with the salty comment. Zion has a bad case of Michael Thomas syndrome, and it's shameful what these players are doing to the team and their teammates cut them. I don't I don't think it's that he doesn't want to play, and I don't think Michael Thomas doesn't want to play. I just think their bodies have broken down. I, I disagree with that with that. B Rad says no. He'll trip and stub his toe and be down for another six months. And shared a gif of they called me Mr. Glass. Keep those votes coming on the poll question of the day. Keep those votes and comments coming and we'll continue to share them throughout today's show you guys have been very active with this poll question already hour number two in the books we'll talk about zion is he going to come back or not and the moves the new orleans saints are making with less east of crescentcitysports.com he'll kick things off for us for hour number three that's next right here on the game Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. It's 8.03 on this Thursday morning, which means only one more hour to go on this edition of RP3 and Company. But don't be sad. Don't be down in the dumps, okay? You still get another hour of RP3 and D-Lo, A. We also got Adam Spencer coming up in a half an hour to preview the Sweet 16, which tips off tonight. We're going to have some of those games for you right here on the game. Get excited about that. Oh, and we're about to talk Saints and Pels with one of our favorites from CrescentCitySports.com. Our good friend Les East joins us now. Les, good morning, bud. How are you? I'm doing well, Raymond. How are you? I'm doing great, bud. I'm doing great. So our poll question of the day has gotten the response that you would think it would have gotten. So we asked, will Zion return during the regular season? 43% say no, 27% are fed up, they say who cares, 23% say who knows, and only 7% say yes. What does the award-winning columnist reporter from CrescentCitySports.com say to this question? Well, uh, who knows is certainly a valid response, Uh, but if you want a more definitive answer, I would say no. they said yesterday that he'll be reevaluated in two weeks, which would be April 5th. Uh, they played Memphis that night. I, it's extremely unlikely that they would come out on that day and say, oh, we reevaluated him and he's playing tonight. I mean, it just doesn't happen that fast. And then that they only have two games after that uh, on Friday and then Easter Sunday. So he would have to return 
within four days of the reevaluation just to play in the regular season finale. And I think that's, though not impossible, I think it's unlikely. So I I would say no, he's probably not going to play in a regular season game. Do you believe it stands right now with 10 games to go and the schedule they have in front of them? Do you believe that the New Orleans Pelicans will make it into the play-in tournament? No, I don't. Um, it's certainly possible. I mean, you look at the math, it's still bunched in, you know, six teams within a couple of games of one another or something like that. So it's certainly possible, and they absolutely have to win tonight. They, they can't afford to not win this game against Charlotte. But then they got four straight games on the road, and that, that road trip, finishes at Golden State and at Denver, and it's hard to see them winning either of those games. Uh, they're going to play the Clippers without Paul George, so perhaps they could steal a win in L.A. that I don't think they would be able to get if Paul George were healthy. And then Portland looked like their best shot of the win, and then the Blazers rose up last night and won at Utah. So that that's not a gimme either. So I think you're probably looking at a one and three road trip, two and two at the absolute best, and then they come home for a while. But they got a really tough schedule when they come home, so it's going to be hard for them to split these last ten, and that would leave them under five hundred for the season. So I just think it's unlikely that they're going to be able to get into one of those top ten spots. But it's certainly possible. They're, they're right there, and they got ten games left, so they can do it. They just don't look like a team that's ready to do it. Oklahoma City is playing with much more passion than they are. Minnesota's playing with more passion than they are. The Lakers are playing with more passion than they are. The Jazz was playing better until they lost last night. So uh, they just don't look as good as the teams are competing against right now. And, And that's a fair point, and something that I brought up earlier, Les, was it looks like Oklahoma City wants it more. It looks like L.A. wants it more. And I, I hate to say it that way, but a big thing that we've seen, especially in the last month or so, is where's the fire? Where's the energy, right, when it comes to this team? Not only are they not executing well, there doesn't seem to be a spark with them. They seem to kind of be resigned to the fact that they're going to miss the play-in tournament, or if best, they're going to be the 10 seed and it's going to be an early exit from the playing tournament. That's how at least they're playing. Yeah, I agree. That, that's the way it looks, and uh, I don't know that I can really explain why that is because there's no good explanation for it. I mean, you're, uh, if you're a competitor, what you want to do is get into the top ten any way you can. Now, I know they're disappointed because – you know, back in December, they were the number one seed in the West. And uh, for a long time, they were looking like they were going to be in the upper half uh, of the teams that got into the playoffs. And they weren't even thinking that they would have to give the play-in tournament a moment's consideration. And here they are with an uphill battle just to get into the play-in. So I know all that's disappointing. I know the absence of Williamson is a dark cloud, and I know not having Brandon Ingram for half the season has been a problem. But nonetheless, at this point, you should look like Oklahoma City looks, like Minnesota looks, like the Lakers look, 
and that is a team that is determined to get one of those 10 spots, and then once you're in there, you do the best you can and see how far you can go. If they don't make the play-in tournament, or let's say even if they do less and they're the 10 seed and it's an early exit, what does this franchise do in the offseason? Well, I think they have to evaluate everything. Uh, I, I would say the the one untouchable on the roster would be Zion Williamson. I know the the ongoing injury issues are frustrating, but he's the best player on the team, one of the best players in the NBA. He's 22 years old. This is a franchise that has to be built around him for the long term. They've given him the max deal that hasn't even kicked in yet. So uh, he's untouchable. After that, everybody's touchable. Uh, including Brandon Ingram. I think they have to take a long, hard look at him and have a long sit-down with him and figure out if he is going to be a part of what they think this franchise can be going forward uh, because he just doesn't look like he's as dedicated as they would like him to be as he should be for the amount of money they've invested in him. He routinely... Uh, does not come back uh, from injuries the way you would expect him to. And I've said this before, the difference between Ingram and Williamson is you can tell it absolutely kills Zion Williamson when injuries prevent him from being out there. When Brandon Ingram gets injured, the attitude is more like, well, I'll get back to you when I decide I'm ready to play. And routinely, that's much longer than what the expectation is. So that's number one. They have to look at whether he's a part of this team going forward. And then they got to look at all the people around him. You know, they have you know, some promising young players, but a lot of them seem to have uh, stalled in their development during the second half of this season. And if they were to move Brandon Ingram, then I think they would have to look at uh, who else they might want to package in trades as they reshape the roster. So there there will be some major decisions that will have to be made. And even if they get into the play-in, I think the way that uh, the season has gone down the stretch requires that kind of evaluation. We're talking with Les East of CrescentCitySports.com, talking New Orleans Pelicans and New Orleans Saints. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. All right, bud, let's switch over to the black and gold. They have been very, very busy. I keep getting told and yelled at by national people that Mickey Loomis has no money to work with, yet he seemingly always finds money. Uh, We always have a good chuckle about that here, don't we? But let's talk about some of these moves that they've been making in the last week the de- defensive tackles they brought in and uh, being able to re-sign some of their guys and some of these uh, DBs that are versatile but are looking to prove that they belong in the league, so you sign them to some team-friendly deals. Uh, what do you make of some of these kind of middle-tier, lower-tier deals that Mickey Loomis and his staff have been able to orchestrate? Well, we'll see how they, they pan out. I don't think anyone they've signed in the last week is anyone to get excited about. We talked last week about how good a job they did, not only in getting Derek Carr, but certainly in getting Jamal Williams, the running back, and then getting the two defensive tackles to replace the two defensive tackles that they lost. And since then, they've re-signed Malcolm Roach, which also helps 
the defensive line, but the, you know the defensive backs that they've signed are uh, no one that's distinguished themselves to this point in the NFL. There, there were roster spots that needed to be filled, and they filled them, but I, I don't think they've signed anybody here in the last week. Uh, they've also signed an offensive lineman, but I don't think anybody in there elevates uh, the depth chart to any significant degree. They, they've gotten the the uh, cheaper candidates, uh, which they were forced to do because of the money issues. They did do a good job of getting under the cap and restructuring people so that they were able to fill the holes on the roster. Uh, but I don't think anything they've done in the last week makes them an, uh, an appreciably better team than they already were. But they, they did a nice job starting in free agency. So I would say um, the free agency period has been a success to this point. But uh, none of these last three or four signees are, are anything special. But they are signees. They may not be special, but you're talking about guys that are probably going to be backups maybe get into some dime coverage situations, probably are going to play special teams, which the Saints value, right? They like having guys that are versatile. Uh, but what it does do less, right, is, okay, we've taken care of some depth issues at some key positions, and that's going to allow them to draft best player available when it comes to the draft, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's that's a good point, and, and it's it's a significant one. Like any team in the NFL, they like to be able to select the highest-rated player on their board every time they make a pick uh, during the draft, and that that's generally what most teams do. But occasionally, you find yourself in a bind where you're thinking, "Boy, we need someone at such and such a position so badly that we may go down our board a bit." grab the best person at that spot because we're desperate. They're not desperate at any position. Okay, They, they took care of quarterback, uh, which probably would have been very high on their, their radar if they hadn't gotten Derek Carr, and now they have Jameis Winston to back him up. Defensive line is still important, and I think offensive line is something they will address, but neither position is one where they have to have somebody in the first round. Um you know, wide receiver is something they could address. Tight end is something they could address high up um, on draft day. But in every case, they can look at it and say, you know, the guy at that position isn't good enough for us to use this pick on him. Let's go with the number one guy on our board, um, regardless of position, because they're going to be filling in roster spots at every position, and they don't have to reach um, for anybody. So to that extent... I think they're well-positioned going into the draft to, to pick the highest person on their board each time they select, and that's where you want to be. We'll wrap it up with this, Les. Now that they've been able to address you know, the majority of their needs, they've also dealt with depth on the roster, so they're not going to have to be desperate. What do you think is going to be their focus with that first-round pick and that second-round pick, and has that changed in the last couple of weeks in your opinion? Well, I think it's changed in that they, they don't have to worry about quarterback and they don't have to worry about running back, uh, signing Jamal Williams uh, to, to compliment Alvin Kamara. Uh, Mike Thomas's uh, new dedication, apparently, to them also lessens the need for a wide receiver, though that's still a position they could address. So 
you know, I think defensive line remains number one on their their list. Uh, I think tight end could be in the mix for the right player. Um, offensive line depth um, is something they could address. And then, you know, I think the secondary also is an area they could go for. But other than defensive line, I don't think there's really a position where they're saying, you know, this is an area we have to hit in the first or second round. I think it's just it's kind of a group, and then they'll they'll see how the first and second rounds play out and uh, turn to their board and grab the highest-rated guy they have and maybe even trade up at the right guys there as their pick approaches. Less. Appreciate your time as always, brother. Keep up the tremendous work you're doing with CrescentCitySports.com, and we'll talk to you next Thursday, bud. Thanks, Raymond. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is known across Acadiana as a master of the English language. You look at all the guys that they got. Clinton Anukoraru, oof, and I don't know how to pronounce this young man's name. TJ Falola. More like a master of broken English, that is. They also added an inside linebacker, Casey Wasawi. These names are killing me, man. I even practiced last night. Me fail English? That's impossible. Now back to that silky smooth delivery of RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to RP3 and Company right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. Don't forget, get your votes in on our poll question of the day on this Thursday edition. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll make sure to try to share them before we sign off on today's show. Right now, though, it's time for us to talk about improving your golf game. Every Thursday, we do this with our friends over at Skill Masters. That's the new great app, which is all about boosting players and coaches' development and exposure. And we spent a lot of time recently talking with with Thomas Wartell. He's the golf pro, the coach for the Skill Masters app. Thomas, good morning to you, brother. How are you? How you doing, RP3? Another beautiful day out there, man. It is another beautiful day, my friend. It's another beautiful day. So I decided to do something. You know, I've been I've been taking your tips. I've been listening to you. I've been conversating every Thursday here about what you do with the Skill Masters app, how you're helping kids, teenagers, and adults, and weekend warriors, so to speak, improve their golf game. Did you nearly drive off the road when you watched the videos I sent you? <laughs> No, I've seen I've seen a lot worse. Listen, that which which you had in your swing is the typical thing that we see uh, all the time. And at Skill Masters, we're always talking about trying to make your motion efficient. So well, we we look at the best players in the world, which are typically the tour players, and uh, we're trying to find out what makes them so unique. Why are they so much better? So we're not looking for differences in their swing. We're looking for similarities. And, you know, everybody's got anomalies and different body types and shapes and athletic ability, and even those guys on tour. But some of the, the commonalities are how efficient their swing is. So, for example, your swing, you, you actually have some great movement in there, 
but you create inefficiencies by, uh, we talked about it, we let your, you let your arms chase out at the top, you get too long of a backswing. You don't need that big, long backswing. You know, look at John Rahm. He, he's got a uh, big shoulder turn, short arm swing. That's one of the things I talk about all the time. You don't need this massive chasing arms all behind your head, John Daly looking swing. It's just that much harder for those arms to catch up on the downswing. And typically, you move your posture, you come out of posture at the top and, and, at the, and you know, down towards impact, and it just creates a, a multitude of uh, bad things that could possibly happen. So we're just looking to make you more efficient. Your first response, though, because I'm going to share this if you don't mind. Your first response is you texted me back. You said, call 911 or a chiropractor. This position alone <laughs> wins you a free lesson. Like, <laughs> and you did a nice job. You broke it down. We kept texting back and forth, and you showed me some examples that made a lot of sense. But, you know, I think for a lot of people, when you're doing your backswing like that, especially when when you're driving, you always feel like you have to go further back and get more motion and get more power. It's just something in, innate inside of you that goes, okay, well, I got to hit the ball really hard. And you break it down really well by saying, no, the swing needs to be efficient. You need to be able to hit the ball the right way. The placement needs to be perfect. All those things matter more than how much umph you think you're putting into the swing when in reality you actually lose so the some of that umph coming back through. Yeah, correct. And and you know, when you I, I can't tell you all day long I put people on video and show them and they say, I can't believe I'm taking the club back that far, I'm losing at the top. Well, here's the bottom line. From the moment, and you're not going to hear this from a lot of places, but from the moment you move that club away to the moment of impact is one second. Of that second, 0.75 of that second is backswing, and 0.25 is transition down to the golf ball. Now, the only time you have to get this club in an efficient position is in the backswing. In 0.25 seconds, no human being is capable of consistently squaring the club and making it efficiently contact the ball properly. And we see people misaligned, and when you get misaligned at the top, for you, in instance, you get long and chased out with your arms, you get misaligned, it's nearly impossible to consistently hit the five human performance factors that we're not going to get into today, but the five human performance factors that you got to do at impact to successfully strike a golf ball. And uh, it's just it's, it's a matter of being efficient getting lined up. If you get your, your wrist cuppy at the top, either you got to uncup them and get them into a hit position in 0.25 seconds, or you can just be efficient in your backswing and have it preset. I often use the word uh, at the top of our backswings, we want to be almost in an impact position already. The closer you are to impact at the top of your backswing, meaning your wrist angles, and the club face, the easier it is to be at impact. The more misaligned you are at the top, the harder it is to get back to impact efficiently and consistently. You also pointed out in our back and forth about stabilizing the head some on the move away. Can you go kind of deeper dive on that? Yeah, that's a great question because one of the worst pieces of advice I hear is keep your head down. Everybody tells their buddies or their wife or their friends, keep your head down, keep your head down. It has nothing to do with keeping your head down. It's maintaining posture. And I use the word posture and spine bend. And so spine bend is when you move back, the vertebrae actually it, uh, it's flex- it has flexibility, and it actually 
you actually extend in the backswing, but you maintain the same angle as you have in you basically you set a position. And in fact, most tour pros increase that angle, and even uh, on the downswing they increase it even more. Hence, that's why you see uh, uh, Sergio Garcia and Rory McIlroy and even Tiger Woods. It looks like they drop down on their downswing if you put it in slow motion. Well, they do. Their their whole body posture actually increases their angle and their rear end actually goes backwards. So most amateurs that we see do the opposite, mostly because they're misaligned and they're trying to realign the club, but they, they actually, as they come down towards the ball, they actually lift up. They're not picking their head up. No one, no one who plays golf uh, regularly says, oh, I think on the next shot I'm going to try to pick my head up and then top it. <laughs> you don't pick up your head because you, you willingly lift your head up. You're picking your head up or losing your posture or your spine bend because you're out of position, and horse tries to straighten out. Uh, so basically, when you get back to impact, you should be in the very similar angle or even more than your initial address position of your posture. It's, it's kind of difficult to explain over you know the radio. It's better to picture picture it, but just to picture. I have a great drill at Skillmasters where we actually uh, I show you what we call spine bend. So when you Take the club to the top. You actually should have bend from your waist all the way up to your chest, and it actually creates a curvature, and then the same at impact. Most people, they actually move their arms. You simply take your arms, if I can describe it real quickly, take your arms and stick them parallel to the ground straight out. Swing back to the top. Try to lay your, your lead hand. For most of you people, that's your left hand. Try to make that point to the ball, and on the downswing, Try to make your trail hand, for most people that's their right hand, point to the ball. So you're just doing like a helicopter move with your arms like this, swinging your arms. And you'll see if you get out of posture, your hand will point way on the outside of the ball. Thomas, appreciate the insight as always, brother, and appreciate you not being too hard on me in the texting uh, back and forth after <laughs> I, was, I sent I you the videos. About the chiropractor. brother can't wait to do this again next week bud we'll catch up uh then thank you for your time as always and uh hey man keep up the great work that you're doing on the course and also what you're doing with skill masters all right see you this is rp3 and company on the game 1037 lafayette and 1041 lake charles southwest louisiana's sports station your home for the lsu tigers and houston astros this is rp3 and company Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Sweet 16 tips off tonight. Great four games on tap. Some intriguing matchups. A lot of them seem to be coin flip games. And to break it all down for us for the NCAA Men's Tournament is our buddy from Saturday down south, Adam Spencer, joins us now. Adam, good morning to you, brother. How are you, my friend? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing great, bud. I'm doing great. So let's, I just want to get your thoughts on the opening weekend of the NCAA tournament. It seems like the last few years we've seen more and more of these double-digit seeds 
taking out some of the top seeds. That was no different this year as we had two twos and two ones get eliminated in the first weekend. Why do you think this is happening? I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, you know, first of all, you see, you know, you look at a team like Missouri and you see a team that has a lot of players that transfer from some of these, you know, lower level schools that then go on to be double digit seeds in the NCAA tournament. So, you know, there are a bunch of players that are, you know, get experience at these, uh, these smaller schools and then go on to bigger and better things, especially, you know, when you see, uh, you know, the, the St. Peter's coach last year is now at Seton Hall. The, the Fairleigh Dickinson coach just got a job at Iona. So, you know, uh, Murray State's coach ended up at LSU last year, Cleveland State's at Missouri. You know, so some of these coaches go, and then with the portal, uh, it's just so easy to bring their guys. Um, but then, you know, so there's, there's a lot more parity when it comes to the talent. And then uh, just, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, – it, it takes a lot of – veteran leadership to win in March. You know, you look at uh, one of my favorite stats is like, I think you have to go back to like 2015 Duke to find a team that has won the national title that has had a freshman as, as one of the top three scorers. You know, there's just, there's just not a lot of uh, teams that rely heavily on freshmen that, uh, that make it very far in, uh, in March madness. And some of these lower level schools, you know, they, they get their guys and then, once every three or four years, they're ready to compete for a tournament bid. So it's no surprise to me that they then go on to win a game or two in the tournament or, uh, you know, in the, in the case of St. Peter's last year, or even three. Of the teams that kind of push through that are the lower seeds that we have for the Sweet 16, who do you like the most to advance on to possibly the lead eight or even the final four. Um, you know, I think that uh, this Princeton team is is really well coached, really sound fundamentally. That's why they beat Missouri is because uh, Mizzou wants to turn you over uh, and and just get up and down the court and get easy buckets in transition. Well, Princeton just didn't give them that opportunity. Princeton did not turn the ball over at all in that game, and it was just it was. A masterclass in uh, in how to uh, in how to avoid a high intensity offense. So even as a even as a 15 seed, I think that uh, Princeton is the one that I'm looking at. That you know Creighton could be in a little bit of trouble. They can't be looking ahead to a potential matchup with uh, with Alabama because Princeton's right there, and uh, they've proven that they can take down some really good teams. Yeah, and Princeton is is that team for me as well because they do a lot of things extremely well, and that's look. It, it always matters, and it does seem veteran teams, teams that have a ton of experience, like you mentioned, tend to uh, have a bit of an advantage when it comes to the NCAA tournament. Let's turn the page and look at the actual Sweet Sixteen matchups for today. Michigan State, K-State. Michigan State's the only lower seed that right now is a Vegas line betting favorite. It's only by a point and a half, though, over K-State. Tom Izzo knows how to win in the NCAA tournament. He proves it year in, year out. Adam, who do you like in this matchup, the first game of the day-to-day between Michigan State and K-State? Yeah, I do like the Spartans. And, uh, you know, our, our guy, Alex Hickey, at Saturday Tradition, he had a piece yesterday about uh, about – just how Izzo 
built this roster specifically for March. You know, he, he started with mentioning just how far down you know, the Big Ten, you think of the Big Ten and you think of just these elite big men, you know, Zach Eady, Trace Jackson Davis. Uh, he, he, but he mentioned, you know, Matty Sissoko is, is Michigan State's big man, and he's, he's a fine player. But when you think of the, the Big Ten, Sissoko is at, at the best, the 10th best big man in the Big Ten, if that. And yet here the Spartans are. You know, and it's because he has guards like Walker and Hogard, and it's because he has a three-point shooter like Hauser. Uh, so, you know, he built this roster for March, so it's not surprising that it struggled a little bit during the, the rigors of Big Ten play, but now is uh, really coming together uh, in a tournament like this. So I, I think that this is another March masterclass from Tom Izzo, and, uh, you know, I don't know if they'll make it all the way to the Final Four, but I do like them. In this game against Kansas State, uh, I, I think that uh, Izzo's coaching advantage over even a guy like Jerome Tang, who I think is a great coach, I think uh, Izzo has the advantage there for sure. So you like Michigan State to win over K-State. What about the next matchup? Because it is a great difference in styles, right? Arkansas versus UConn. Razorbacks <laughs> had an up-and-down season just like Michigan State did. But here they are in the Sweet 16. UConn kind of under the radar. They've had a really good season. They're very fundamentally sound. Who do you like between the Razorbacks and the Huskies? Yeah, I mean, this is going to come down to uh, you know the the Mitchell twins for Arkansas. You know, they're they're big guys. They're the ones that uh, have to defend the post. And uh, UConn has a pair of great big guys in uh, Klingon, and then more specifically Adama Sanogo. You know he's he's one of the best big men in the entire country, and we're going to be seeing him in the NBA here soon. Uh, so if the Mitchell twins, if they get too early fouls on them and have to sit out for any stretch of time, if they get into foul trouble, then Arkansas is in big trouble. Uh, yeah, I think that Arkansas can score with the Huskies, but uh, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna need those big guys down low because behind the Mitchell twins, they don't they don't have a ton of size and. Uh, UConn has size for days, and it's, it's, they like to play through the post. And uh, so, you know, but then if I, I do think that they'll be able to win this game, you know, I, I think that Arkansas makes it a third straight Elite Eight run. I think that Devo Davis is playing the best basketball of his career right now, and it just always seems to be that way in March. You know, that guy rises to the occasion. So I think that his veteran leadership, and uh, as somebody who's been there before, uh, he gets the job done. Let's go on to the uh, night games. In, in Tennessee, you know, the, the knock has been on Rick Barnes. His team's always flounder in the NCAA tournament, whether it was at Texas or more so recently at Tennessee. After getting by and holding off the Louisiana Raging Cajuns, they beat up on Duke and advance to the Sweet 16, but now they get to face a Florida Atlantic team that won 33 games as a nine seed. What do you like about this matchup? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the the FAU coach the other day, Dusty May, you know, he had an interesting quote. I know what he was trying to say, but uh, his quote was something like, "If we lose to Tennessee, it'll be because they beat us." Like, well, yeah, that's that's how basketball works. Um, you know, that if, if they if you lose because the other team wins, yeah, that's how that works. But uh, I get what he was saying, and it was that uh, you know the style 
if if it if FAU loses, it's going to be because Tennessee imposes its will. Well, Tennessee is really really good at it, imposing its will. You know, Duke wanted to get up and down the floor, but uh, Tennessee said no. We're gonna we're gonna pound you and uh, make you. You know, you saw Kyle Filipowski. He got he got beaten up that game. Like, he had a cut under his eye. He got he took a couple hard fouls from. Uh, Euros Plavsic early in the game, and uh, and you know the, the Tennessee just made it a rock fight, and uh, I just haven't seen any team really be able to speed Tennessee up all that much. So I think that this is a low-scoring game, and that's where Tennessee thrives. And uh, you know, I don't know if they cover the the five-point spread or whatever it is, but because I, I think it could be close, but I think Tennessee wins a, a low-scoring game there. And they punched their ticket to the Elite Eight, which would be a great thing for obviously for Rick Barnes, who, you know, has been a great coach for so long, but the tourney disappointment has been obviously obvious. Uh, talking with Adam Spencer of Saturday Down South, we're previewing the Sweet 16 for the NCAA men's tournament, the nightcap. I made the joke earlier, Adam, you know, sometimes you go out to dinner and you're just obsessed about the dessert because you know it's going to be the star of the meal. And it's not a knock on the other three games today, but we get Gonzaga versus UCLA, man, as the final game of the day. Just how good is that game going to be, and what's the key to that game, do you believe? Yeah, uh, the key to this game is uh, is Drew Timmy. I mean, he's going to have to dominate for Gonzaga to win. Uh, if UCLA can stop him, and yeah, that's not going to be – easy with some of the losses, you know, Jalen Clark not being in there. Uh, you know, the UCLA is favored, and they should be because of Jaime Jaquez. He's an incredible player. But Drew Timmy, when he's going strong in the post, he's almost unstoppable, uh, and Gonzaga's almost unstoppable. So you know, I, I'm going to be looking at what kind of numbers he puts up because when Gonzaga has been eliminated in past in the past couple of NCAA tournaments, Timmy has really struggled. Um, and so UCLA needs to, uh, you know, kind of play defense like Tennessee and just be really rough with him almost early in the post and just let him know that, uh, you know, some of these finesse moves that he likes to do down low aren't going to, uh, aren't going to work. Or if they do work, they're going to come with a really hard foul at the end of them. So, you know, I, I think that stopping Timmy, I mean, it sounds obvious, but, uh, you know, this isn't, the Gonzaga teams of the past where they've had a really good point guard or even like a really dynamic secondary option to Timmy. So it starts and ends with him. And if UCLA can slow him down, they'll be the ones that advance to the elite eight. And if they can't, then uh, Gonzaga will, uh, you know, it'd be interesting, you know, after a couple of years or a few years of being a one seed, if not the top overall seed in the tournament, if, uh, if a number three seeded Gonzaga team that's kind of flown under the radar is uh, is one that gets back to the Elite Eight or uh, even the Final Four. Adam will wrap it up with this. The other Sweet 16 action will be tomorrow. Who do you like to advance in those other games and move on to the Elite Eight? Yeah, this is a this is the this is a game that I worry about for Alabama. You know, I, I worry about this game more than even a Princeton or Creighton matchup against San Diego state, because uh, before the tournament, I said that the thing that worried me was uh, that a Tony Bennett defense could slow down the tide and, uh, and stop Brandon Miller. But I didn't know Virginia was good enough to make it that far even. 
um, and they proved that they weren't. But San Diego State also plays a very aggressive style of defense, and uh, you know Alabama lost to Tennessee earlier, so they earlier in this regular season, so they they don't necessarily uh, dominate these better defensive teams. So I worry about that game. I still have Alabama winning, but I don't think that they cover the seven and a half spread. Uh, Houston, I think will win pretty comfortably. Uh, I do have Creighton ending Princeton's run. And then uh, I think that uh, I think that that Xavier Texas game, that's another you know two three matchup that we get for the nightcap. and I think that that's going to be a really, really good game. but uh, Texas beat Kansas and just bumped them earlier this year and in, uh, in the big twelve title game. So I really think that uh, we're gonna see some chalk on Friday. Um, and but that's just gonna set up some awesome elite eight matchups. Adam. Appreciate your time as always, brother. Enjoy the games, and we'll talk to you soon, my friend. Sounds good. Talk to you later. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 doesn't play around when it comes to his personal life. I got one NFL team, I got one college team, I got one Major League Baseball team. And the big fella's also monogamous when it comes to his sports fandom. That's what I got my merch for, that's who I support, period. Call me old-fashioned. VN. Call me old-fashioned, that's fine. I'll be old-fashioned. RP3 is just committed to providing you with great sports talk here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana. Sports Station. Oh, I want to take a moment to thank all of our guests. We had a great lineup for you today. Thomas Wolf, author of The Called Shot. It's in paperback form right now. You got to go check that out. It is a tremendous read. Also want to thank Lessies from CrescentCitySports.com. Talking Saints, talking Pels today. Also want to thank our guy Thomas Wartell, golf pro from the Skill Masters app. And of course, Adam Spencer from Saturday Down South to help us preview the Sweet 16, which tips off tonight. We did have a poll question of the day, and you guys did not disappoint with all your comments and all your votes. We asked you, will Zion Williamson return during the regular season? 42% of you say no. 28% say who cares. You're over it. 20% say who knows. And 10% say yes. Thanks to all who voted and left your comments on the poll question of the day. We appreciate you making us part of your morning. For the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Iserlo, better known as D'Lo. I'm Raymond Parsha III, better known as RP3. We'll be back on tomorrow, 6 to 9. Got a great lineup set for you for getting you ready for the weekend. But until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foot and Footnotes is up next right here on The Game.